When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Oh, for sure. You, you know, X, Y, Z, you're all these bad things. But yeah, I, I, I think people need to discriminate and should be allowed to discriminate intensely upon any single factor that they want. Hey, guys, Justin here from the edit. We didn't do a good job introing it, but here we talked to Rebecca, who's an OnlyFans content creator. I actually wasn't I wasn't sure that we had any uh, adult content creators on our thing. So I'm pleasantly surprised that you're here. I had a handful of questions to, for you, but I'll start with the one that is most selfishly interesting to me since I'm making a video on OnlyFans. Uh, yeah. What is your experience on OnlyFans? And from that, what do you think the psychology of someone who uh, subscribes to OnlyFans, pays for the photos is compared to someone who might just go to uh, uh, whatever website, some porn website? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I think as you mentioned in your your last conversation about it, it's definitely about the connection. Like it's mm-hmm. it's not just paying to see adult content. Mm-hmm. Um, it's 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 partly being able to talk to the creator directly, um, and it's also the feeling like you you're getting some kind of special access to someone's life. Mm-hmm. Like I, I post. Um, on social media to promote my OnlyFans. So I do I do reveal stuff about my life there, but on OnlyFans, it's like even deeper. Got it. So there's more to, I guess it makes people feel also like they might be special, like they get special insider access. Mm-hmm. And so I- but That's my best guess, because I, I don't personally um, subscribe to any people. So it's just, it's just kind of my guess. Got it. So, and, and totally fine if you want to answer, but I, I sense that there are different levels of customer service that you can provide based on the size of your audience. So, you know, I signed up for OnlyFans for this project and some of the people, Jem Wolfie is her name, I imagine yeah. has so many people that she's probably personally incapable of responding to the messages. Are you at a level, if you're comfortable sharing, where you are still able to, to one-to-one respond, no virtual assistance? And if so, what is that level that you're at in terms of numbers? Yeah. So the, the numbers, um, fluctuate mm-hmm. It's not a, so new people join, some people leave, but mm-hmm. it's roughly around 150 subscribers. Mm-hmm. And, um, there's probably five to 10 people that I talk to fairly regularly. Got it. Um, and I, I probably could talk to more people, but they don't seem to be there for that. Mm-hmm. I think that they're happy to just consume what I, what I share just as is. Got it. Okay. So can I ask you a question? Yeah, please. So the, the five to 10 that are getting communication with you, is that because they're higher to your patrons or donors? Or is that because of the way that they interact on the platform? That's them reaching out to me and, and like starting conversations. And then I, I respond and then a rapport just builds. And then we kind of 
just go from there. And so some people I talk to every day just because we've kind of established that kind of connection. Mm-hmm. Um, and I try to initiate conversations with more people because there's, you know, there's an expectation that you tip for the time. Yeah. Got and it. so I, I had a, if you don't mind, there was a, a comment interaction I had with someone when we talked about OnlyFans on our podcast, and I'd love to get your take. Do you think that the people who are donating to your page or subscribe to your page, do they have aspirations of a romantic relationship with you one day? And this is like their attempt to make that happen? Or do you think they're there for something else? I think that might be a fantasy that people have that if you were to actually sit down and ask them, they would they would know that it was a fantasy, but mm-hmm. they might sort of just let themselves think that because it's fun. Because actually only fans bans any kind of discussion of in-person meetings anyway. Oh, fascinating. So even if I were to ask people like, oh, do you want to meet up sometime if we're in the same city? Um, I, w- I could have my account banned if I did that. Fascinating. Wow. Okay, so I, I have so many questions. Thank you for, for being so keen to answer these, by yeah, the way. Thank, thank you. Um, okay, so the different tiers, and this is my, I guess, the business mind going in. What percentage of your income is coming from those basic level subscribers? And then what percentage roughly is coming from upsells, such as, you know, access to this photo, video, time to speak with me? It's about 50-50. I, I kind of looked through the last few months to get mm-hmm. a sense of where the income was coming from. And it seems it seems to be roughly 50-50. Got it. Okay. So those, so those upsells are obviously quite important. And yeah. one of the things, I lived in Las Vegas for a while and met just hanging out at restaurants and clubs and all the things. There was a lot of girls that worked in strip clubs. And mm-hmm. in speaking to them, particularly in Vegas, I found that there was a, a real revulsion towards their clients from them that they kept secret while they were dancing. But if you found them in a candid moment, they would say, I do not like or respect or, and, and, and have multiple fake names to feel like I am separate from these people. I'm curious if any of that carries to OnlyFans or perhaps if the, the barrier of uh, feeling safer behind the computer it makes it such that you can have a relationship that you respect, like, and enjoy these people's company? I definitely relate to um, what you just shared, like what those Mm -hmm. women shared with you Mm -hmm. in the sense that there, like there can be times where I have a lot of revulsion towards Mm -hmm. the customer and that Mm -hmm. I experienced um, both when I was escorting and now that I'm doing OnlyFans. Mm -hmm. And it's unfortunate because I think a lot of it is just because of the way these dynamics develop. Because I, I do have customers currently, and I had clients before um, when I was doing in-person work, where I genuinely really liked them as people, and the time spent together was good. Mm-hmm. And I would say that it was positive. But um, there are these kind of, like there can be an animosity between sex workers and clients that clients aren't generally aware of. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. I have so many questions. So if no, you want to hop in. So, uh, and this is, uh, this is, I'm sure, probably something you hear all the time. If you had hopped on and Justin didn't tell me who you were, I would not guess that this is someone who has an OnlyFans account and a history as an escort. And I'm sure you hear that all the time. So yeah. uh, one of the things that I saw again in Las Vegas is that uh, it, it seemed a bit more obvious in Vegas, quite frankly, who was who. But when I spoke to people and found out more about their stories, they often came from some sort of a broken home that uh, that the... The, their family was not present in some meaningful way. And though they didn't always trace the line, it seemed that that was overrepresented in that particular line of work. You obviously are very comfortable speaking about this. So I'm very curious if if you find that 
is there is there a wounding that leads to sex work or is that just a bad stereotype that people have about it and that needs to go away? I, I think it is definitely a stereotype and I think it's one of these myths that keeps getting perpetuated. Um, and I think part of that is because there definitely are people in the sex industry that have serious wounding and issues and um, sad stories and things like that. And then people latch onto that. Mm-hmm. But if you were to go ask a bunch of dentists or engineers, or, yeah, like I'm, I'm sure you'd find that <laughs> as well, you know? Totally, totally. Okay, so that's not your experience in, in the industry, just to be clear that um, what do you think then the other motivations, of course, financial is one for you in your case to to get into this line of work would be? Um, the two strongest motivators for me and also what I've observed in all the different people that I've met over the years um, for me, even more than money, it's the flexibility. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I started escorting, I was a full-time student and I I could make all the money that I needed to take care of myself by just working one or two days a week. And that could be any time and any day, just whenever I wanted to. Um, and then if I was on summer break or something, you know, I could go and work in different cities. And so it was also a way to travel. Mm. Uh, so there was just like a flexibility and an independence combined with um, how much money there could be, you know, because at the time um, when I started escorting, I was 19. So any other job that I could have done part-time would just not have paid me enough to be able to live on. Got it. Got it. And if you don't mind, how old are you now? And again, but if, yeah, if you don't want to answer any of my questions, please just say so. Cause I'm going to be like, how old are you? Is that okay? Did you have one? Uh, No. Well, my, my question is, are you full-time on OnlyFans now? I am now. Well, yeah. Uh, well, OnlyFans is the only thing I'm doing right now, but I would not say that I'm putting in full-time hours at all. Like it's a part-time in terms of time investment. I was working um, at a mainstream job before the pandemic. And then I was kind of pushed out of that when like, like a lot of people. Got it. And how, how do you, how does one grow in OnlyFans? Like, do you mostly, is it through Instagram or what is it? How do you get in touch with new people? How do people find out about you? Yeah. So OnlyFans creators are entirely responsible for driving traffic to their page because there's no kind of search feature within OnlyFans. Mm -hmm. Um, So people tend to um, use Instagram, Twitter, Reddit. I think those are the main ones. And I only focus on Twitter. Um, and I think if I was more motivated, I would be trying to expand to to other um, social media platforms. But I'm I'm just kind of it's kind of exhausting to spend that much time on the internet. Sure, <laughs> and then Chelsea read that. That's actually how we Reddit was the one that we used to grow. And in terms of honest but potentially hurtful feedback, Reddit is a really good place to go get it. So I remember posting some of my first blog posts and just getting chewed up in the comments be like okay welcome to the internet this is not going to be the uh, cakewalk the whole time yeah yeah i, I feel that <laughs> got it okay so we talked about the business a little bit we talked about the uh the things my question for you is is there anything because i want to give you a, a chance to uh, platform yourself speak is there anything that we haven't asked you that you feel is important in terms of stigma or business or anything that that we haven't really gotten to I think that the most important message that I have or the thing that I don't get an opportunity to talk about enough is just the fact that um, sex work is work Mm -hmm. and the work part is very important. And what I mean by that is that we don't have the same protections and rights as other workers in other industries. 
um, because well, all kinds of sex work are highly stigmatized, mm-hmm. um, some more so than others. And then some forms of sex work are criminalized, which really puts us at risk. And so um, something that really frustrates me is just how how deeply this stigma is ingrained in our society to the point that it's it's like we as a culture don't even care that we're increasing the risk of harm to sex workers because we just don't want to deal with figuring out how to decriminalize it in a way that makes sense. And I find that really hurtful. Like it hurts to live in a, in a culture that sort of devalues my actual life as a human being. Mm. And other than decriminalization, are there any concrete policies or things that you think would remedy that? It really is. Um, decrim is like the mm-hmm. is like the main thing that I think that would help. And so for you, so uh, right now, obviously, OnlyFans is decriminalized. So do you yeah. is that your entire now source of income? And do you feel with this new wave of not only decriminalization of OnlyFans, but it seems like a much more widespread acceptance? Is that starting to make you feel better about some of the things that you described as being very upsetting where you're not feeling valued? Um, I don't know that, that, uh, I, I guess maybe OnlyFans is becoming a bit less stigmatized because I am hearing about it, you know, like in culture, like, mm-hmm. you know, it's referenced by Cardi B and things, you know, yeah, I, like, yeah. I hear it happening. I see it. But, um, what I encounter a lot is this weird, um, distinctions that people make between different kinds of sex work. So I'll hear, or I'll see a lot of things like, oh, OnlyFans isn't real sex work or like porn, um, like solo porn isn't, doesn't really count because you're not a whore, like mm-hmm. you're not a prostitute, mm-hmm. um, things like that. And so I kind of feel like it's important for us to keep a, a united front. And that's why I really push using the term sex worker, whether or not we're talking about a dancer or a porn performer or um, an escort. Um, Cause it, otherwise we're just going to throw a whole group of people under the bus, like people doing um, prostitution, which is like at the low, uh, like the bottom of the hierarchy. Yeah. I imagine that's exactly what people who do only fans are going to want to do though. Like, you know what I mean? Meaning. Uh, yeah. If you're, if you're a girl, let's say oh, you were an Instagram yourself. model yeah, yeah. or a Disney actress and now you're on OnlyFans, you, I imagine they're going to do everything they can to say OnlyFans is like being an Instagram model and it's nothing like being a prostitute. Mm-hmm. Like they're going to try hard to draw that line, I think. I think that's a smart intuition. Is that what you've seen? Yeah, I see a lot of that. And, and that's something really frustrating in our community. So if you dig a little deeper into this, you'll find that there's something that we call the horrarchy. Um, <laughs> okay. So, yeah, it's, it's really, it's pretty wild. So like at the very bottom, it's, it's prostitution. Mm-hmm. And so, at, and, and part of this is that people want to make themselves feel better about what they're doing. So like if, I don't know, if a girl is, is filming herself masturbate and then selling that to people, and, and then she can say to herself, well, at least I'm not a prostitute, mm-hmm. um, you know, things. So, and then I'll see, um, and people in porn do that as well. They'll, um, I've seen people make comments like, oh, you know, I work in, in film and, and like, just talk about all the ways in which it's so different to separate themselves from that, that low, that low group that they don't want to be associated with. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And I mean, I even, I, I, I certainly feel that I was raised in this culture. I totally can intuit the order of the hierarchy. 
One of the things that I'm, I'm curious about is because I, I'm sure that one of the reasons that people on OnlyFans separate themselves into the upper tiers of the hierarchy, if you will, is for their personal romantic relationships. Because if I think of men, I think there's probably a larger group of men that would be okay with their girlfriend or future girlfriend or future wife taking lewd photos, fewer with nude photos, fewer with video, all the way down to prostitution. So I'm curious in your in your life, have you had difficulty in your relationships because of this? Do you something you bring up right away so that you're screening people and they're understanding? How have you, what, what effects have you seen and how have you dealt with it? Um, I think that your, your intuition is right, that there, um, if someone is just selling like nude photos or something, they can, it's sort of comforting to know that a partner would likely be more comfortable with that than with other types of sex work. Mm -hmm. Um, in my own experience, I haven't really had, um, difficulty with dating, but I've been very picky and selective to make sure that the kind of person that I would be dating would be okay with that or that I would be able to have that kind of conversation. Mm -hmm. um, but it's really stressful. Like when I've tried dating, it's always in the back of my mind that, okay, this is going to be a thing that I have to bring up. When do I bring it up? How do I bring it up? Even if I think they're going to be open-minded, the initial reaction might be so surprising that it could be really uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then I've heard a lot. And, and so I, I've been fortunate in that I've made good selections, I guess, in how I tell people. And so it hasn't negatively impacted the relationships. But I've heard some really, really heartbreaking stories, especially yeah. around um, like in relationships, it, the the word whore will be thrown around in an argument, mm -hmm. like just really cruel, um, you know, where someone will, will kind of act like it's OK. But then in a fight, they'll bring it up like an insult. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because as, as I'm thinking through this, it seems like uh, culturally, biologically, that there's expectations of a man. So a man is supposed to be strong, provide, uh, emotionally stable, and a woman is supposed to be chaste, uh, have a limited sexual history, et cetera. And, and you mentioned the arguments that I see that's what's coming from both sides, right? It's you're not a man. And also, it sounds like you don't qualify as a good woman is one of the things that is being said. So. Is that something that you're conscious of? Are you just a less judgmental person all around us, I guess what I'm asking? Do you find that you're that you're less likely to put people down for all sorts of different things? Yeah, I, I mean, I I try really hard to be um, as non-judgmental as, as possible. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I'm thinking of the, the iDubs video. I don't know if you know who iDubs is. He's a YouTuber who's, uh, it came yeah. out that his girlfriend was making an OnlyFans selling lewds and I suppose in the upsells nudes, I'm not totally certain. And the internet went berserk called him a simp, was was very upset that their chosen content creator was dating an OnlyFans girl. And in reflecting on how I might feel and how the contents, uh, the comments rather, were characterizing him, there's a sense that if your girlfriend does that, that there's nothing left that's special for you. And so in your relationships, uh, how, do you carve out something that is special for your the people that you're dating that is that is unique? Or do you think that that idea of even having something that is special, that is singular, is outdated and has nothing to do with real connection and love? So for me personally, I didn't have any kinds of there aren't things that I separate out as like, Oh, I'll only do this with my mm -hmm. partner. Um, and I won't do it at work. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think that part of, part of that, well, or what's important is that being at work isn't the same as being with my partner. Like if I'm with my partner, I, um, we can communicate about what each of us wants. And so 
like if I didn't want to do something sexual, I just wouldn't, or we would work up to it or whatever, just Mm -hmm. the way you normally would in a relationship. But at work, it would be like, okay, I don't feel like it, but this is my job or like, or I'll figure out a way to get into it. And, and like, I'm not relating to a, a customer the way that I would to a partner. Got so it, it just doesn't feel the same. Even if I really like a client, it's just not the same kind of dynamic. Mm-hmm. It's so one of the things, and, and, I'm, and I guess I'm just kind of pinging off of my own initial reactions is that I could see that stoking insecurity because I think that one of the ways that men are measured and I have felt measured in my own life is a woman's willingness to be sexual with me and her excitedness to do all different kinds of sexual things that maybe she wouldn't have even done with a previous boyfriend, but because you're such the coolest guy in the whole wide world, she's opening that to you. So have you noticed that insecurity is something difficult to handle in your relationships with men? And if so, how do you start to handle that? I guess I haven't personally encountered it much, but that could be, I might be a bit of a unique case there because I've tended to seek out partners who are like in the polyamory or open Uh, relationship type of scene, just because I find that they would be more open-minded to that. And the same tools and strategies that you learn in open relationships would sort of apply. Mm -hmm. Um, But for people, I have heard that that's an issue for other people where um, like in straight relationships, you know, like the man will feel kind of, he might feel, I don't know if he feels emasculated or just sort of like, I'm not, yeah, I'm not special. Mm -hmm. Something I have encountered before is um, like a girlfriend of mine told me that her partner felt really um, insecure about his ability to provide financially. So she would have clients that would want to fly her to Europe and Mm -hmm. spoil her and they were very wealthy and things like that. And then he's like, you know, working kind of like a regular job. Um, and just couldn't do that. So he felt like a kind of a loser, I guess, is what she said. He totally. Felt like. totally. Yeah. I mean, as I'm thinking through this, uh, I think that there are reasons that the particular insults towards women and towards men arise. And it's it's a control mechanism, right? You want the man to be strong and stand up for you and all these kinds of things so that you can get that behavior from him. And men say whore so that they can limit a woman's options and ensure that that she doesn't have a better choice than him. Uh yeah. I, and I could I can see that instinct even arising in me if I was if I was forced into a situation where someone that I cared deeply about was regularly hanging out with people that were wealthier, more handsome, <laughs> all these different kinds of things, and then having sex with them. My my thought would be, well, what do you even like about me? And I think that that is an insecure thought. Um, so God bless these guys for just <laughs> for not for not dealing with it. I know that that I would struggle with that, and certainly I've been in I've been in open relationships and have struggled with those sorts of things. Yeah, I, I, I do. I think it, it is challenging. And a lot of that is just because of cultural norms around monogamy. And, mm-hmm. and I don't know, like, we could have a, you know, a discussion about biology or culture, whatever, mm-hmm. but it's not the norm. It's definitely not the norm. And so given that we're not raised with the kind of tools to learn how to be able to deal with that or make it work, it's definitely it's definitely challenging and it is much harder to find a partner that's willing to do that kind of work. Yeah. Well, I'm curious if either of you disagree because I, I uh, just think it, you may or you may not, but I feel like people can feel, are allowed to filter for anything they want in a romantic partner as long as they're not hurtful. Mm-hmm. So like you like tall women, you like short women, you like tall men, you like short men. It's actually all fine. Like you want somebody who's got a ton of sexual experience. You want someone who's got very little sexual experience. I actually think you're allowed to have whatever standards you want as long as you're not 
hurtful about telling the person that they don't meet your standards. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's wrong no. to say, hey, like, I just feel like you're based on what you've done in the past in your life. I'm not interested no matter what in the past in your life means. Yeah. For your own romantic relationships. I think you're allowed to make that statement as long as you make it in an unhurtful way. Yes. I think the problem becomes when when people feel uh, less than because based on what somebody did in the past and in order to recover and we can talk about this later in order to, you know, that shame that they feel about not stacking up then comes out as. Oh, for sure. You, you know, X, Y, Z, you're all these bad things. But yeah, I, I, I've, I think people need to discriminate and should be allowed to discriminate intensely among any single factor that they want no, when it someone, comes to who they sleep with right short tall guy girl you know all of these are totally reasonable ways to describe yeah i have a sleeve your, tattoo i think yeah. if a woman says listen you seem great but you have a sleeve tattoo and i have a hard no sleeve tattoo dating mm-hmm. rule like that's not I'm, i can't get upset at that unless they say like and the reason is because you're uh and say a bunch of really hurtful things yes do you do you guys disagree i agree Rebecca? Yeah, i definitely think people have every right to say what they're looking for and what they're not and what they're boundaries and limits are, um, I would wonder, um, like, I guess I would, I would just ask someone to question what's going on underneath. And even if like we removed the sex work part from the equation and we were just to say like, okay, like if a guy just didn't want to date a woman who had slept with 300 men Mm -hmm. um, in the past, like, why is that? I would just want someone to kind of question what's, what's going on underneath there. Of course they have every right to not want to. Yeah. And I and I uh, this is what I actually don't know the answer to, because I've, I've thought of this. And like I said, I grew up in this culture and I, mu- I would probably have a reaction if I was dating someone and found that they had a history in uh, pornography that that this would arise in me. And I I've asked myself this question. I just come up living in Las Vegas. before, <laughs> <laughs> um, And what I find in myself is uh, I can't untie what is biological like okay this is sort of hardwired ensure paternity and ensure fidelity and what is cultural you're not man enough if she's being satisfied by this many other people and she's not chaste in a way and so i don't pretend to i mean i probably do pretend quite often but i won't pretend right now <laughs> that i have completely untied those things but i do think those are um two of the building blocks to, to what may be arising and it's certainly what i do notice is that the degree to which it's like quick and fiery and angry and frustrated and panicked is the degree to which it's an emotional reaction. Not necessarily one that I need to talk down from or change or adjust, but okay, like this is stoking some sort of inner deep feeling and not my rational brain. Yeah, your, at this heartbeat, moment. your heartbeat is a good way to tell yes. if you're triggered or being thoughtful. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, exactly. And so when, when all that kind of stuff comes up, I, I just think it would be interesting and helpful if people would just sit with that. Mm-hmm. Um, cause I think what can happen is, is people might, um, just blurt out stuff yeah. or, or have like an automatic reaction. Like they might discount a person altogether before actually maybe just sitting with it for a few days and being like, Oh, all this and just the stuff's coming up for me. What is it about? And then mm-hmm. afterwards they might find that, I don't know, they work through some stuff and they are open to dating a person with that history or it, they might think about it and be like, no, actually, I'm not. But to have like an automatic dismissal of a person when all that stuff's coming up that I think is related to a lot of cultural baggage. I, I just I guess I would it would be cool if people would pay more attention to that kind of stuff. Yeah. And yeah. I think I think really the person who benefits the most is the person doing the questioning, whether or not they decide to enter into the relationship. It's really nice to know the cultural norms that you're trying to fill with every fiber of your being and how it feels when they get violated and you don't stack up in good comparison to those because then you can go 
okay, I'm going to buy into this thing and I'm going to play by these rules and I'm going to allow this to be an external weight on my decision making and happiness. Or you can go, you know what, this one is, I don't want this one. <laughs> like, I'm going to try to find a way to work through it. Um, yeah. but, but what I did see is I tried to find a way to work through the open relationship jealousy because I was like, this is dumb. All of the reasons that I'm being told that this is a bad thing, uh, I don't logically buy into. But I did find that it was so deeply ingrained in me after, I don't know, two, three, four years of trying. I just gave up. I was like, I can't. <laughs> I can't untie this from myself. So uh, to the people who can, awesome. Uh, I have not yet been able to. Maybe one day, though. We'll see. Yeah, that's totally fair enough. And I actually just think it's really cool that you tried, that mm -hmm. you went there and you explored all that stuff. Yeah. No, and it, and it was, uh, I don't regret it, you know, <laughs> not a bad, not a bad thing to have done. Learn what kind of relationships don't work for you. Yeah. So um, I know we can't promote any OnlyFans on here. So if only if you'd like to, do you want to shout out your Instagram or Twitter or Twitter? Yeah, actually, yeah, probably my Twitter is better. So it's Rebecca Madison underscore. Rebecca Madison underscore. Well, Rebecca, thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. It's been super fascinating and I've got a lot oh. of uh, stuff to think about myself because what you are talking about is... I actually don't think it's subtle. I think we're talking about like the reinvention of society because it's something as fundamental as the basis of male-female relationships, what is acceptable, what is unacceptable. And if those stigmas change, the entire world changes, right? Like the way that families are structured can change. And so I don't know that it's right, wrong, good, bad, but I do see it moving in this direction. And I think that's, it has a lot of implications for for the world that we, we might be living in 20 years from now. So it's, it's, thank you for uh, for inspiring me to reflect on this. Well, yeah. Thank you guys so much for the opportunity. It was nice to meet you all. Awesome. Okay. We're okay. here. We're back. Headphoneless. Yeah. <laughs> so no, I mean, so something I didn't want to keep her for a conversation that was going to be long and not have to do with that. But yeah. uh, it reminds me of, I don't know what's biology, what's culture in terms of jealousy, but we've talked about this before off the podcast. The things you hear a thousand times when you're growing up, that's what you believe. And like no amount of facts or attempts to change your mind will really work with rare exception, right? But that's why the religion you are is almost always the religion of your parents. <laughs> when you're Jewish, almost always your parents are Jewish. When you're Christian, when, sometimes you go atheist, but very, very, very rarely will you just be like, oh, I prefer uh, to be Muslim, but I'm from a Christian family. You know what I mean? You, and uh, it reminds me a lot because you're like, oh, the shame, the jealousy. It reminds me of the same thing in terms of these police shootings where people will try to quote data and say, well, if you look at the data, just as many white people get killed as black people. And if you look at it, it skews very similarly to who the, I think it's the FBI is saying is committing violent crimes. It's so unpersuasive to someone who has heard since they were growing up, the police are coming for you. They're particularly against you because of your skin and they're, they're gonna kill you for no reason. If you hear that growing up over and over and over in the same way you hear that your religion is correct, of course, a spreadsheet from the FBI isn't yeah. going to change your mind. And that's just what that made me think of is like, yeah, if your culture tells you over and over and over again that you shouldn't date a woman unless she's had a certain amount of sexual partners or less, and you hear it over and over and over again growing up, nothing is good. This podcast isn't going to change your mind. Mm -hmm. Data is not going to change your mind. Thinking about it after you read a book, like, yeah, it's just it's so hard to shake that stuff if you get it messaged to you when you're two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, uh, you know what I mean? Yeah, well, and beyond that, I do think there's a degree to which uh, trying to ensure paternity and guarding against promiscuity is very likely hardwired into, uh, particularly the male brain, because you can't be certain of paternity, right? 
So all this obsession over virginity in the Middle Ages, it did not come out of nowhere. Oh, yeah. But I'm, well, so I guess what I'm saying is you so can culture. Yeah, well, you can culture argue that cultures got value, I think, in the same way Jordan Peterson argues, mm -hmm. like you think the government's all shitty because you're, you know, 16 years old. But trust me, it's set up this way because yeah. this is what evolved to be successful. So maybe culture has a purpose. But what I'm saying is we were kind of talking about like, well, the biology is hardwired. You can't shake that, but you mm -hmm. can shake the culture. And I'm saying not really. It's really yeah. hard to shake culture. Oh, that's what I found. That was that was exactly my point. But I, yeah, I'm saying no matter where you're attributing it to, if mm -hmm. you heard and some people will. But if you heard, for instance, that it was the most important thing in your partner was that they were a virgin guy or girl. Yeah. That if the person is unclean, they are unworthy of your love. And you heard it every single day from all the people you admire, by the way, all yeah. the adults in your life, your parents, this and that. And it was just told to you every single day. By the time you had to be 18, most everyone would feel that way. Yeah. You know what I mean? And like no amount of reading or listening to podcasts would change at least half of people. Most people would not change. From going, yeah. no, virgin, virgin. I'm positive of this. I'm positive of this because I heard it every day when I was forming my opinions as a child. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I think I think it's... um. Obviously, biology is the hardest thing to shake, but culture, I'm realizing, isn't this this flippant thing you can overcome with your front brain? Yeah, but I mean, I, I tr I've tried in various areas of my life, and it was this naive, not totally, it was kind of a blank slate idea that I could think my way to what logically the best way to live was, mm -hmm. what logically ought to make me upset with someone and shouldn't make me upset in all sorts of different areas of life. And that by just reinforcing that and thinking it, that I would change my actual reaction. And in the last several years, I've learned to accept at a, at some level some of the things that I've tried to change about myself and go, no, that that is going to be how I feel. doesn't mean that I need to scream, rage, or express mm -hmm. these emotions in any sort of destructive way, but that I then need to plan a life about around this piece of myself that is relatively fixed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like I'm not going to be adjusting this personally. And that doesn't mean that I get to foist these ideals onto other people. Like if there's a new generation that does, isn't raised with the same cultural baggage that I had when I was raised in the 90s, God, that's amazing for yeah, me. Yeah. Um, but I'm not necessarily going to get rid of mine because I have a history and that's, they're in there. You yeah, know? no, and I, well, and I think it's similarly because we've talked about like what's the solution to today's problems? Is it based on race? Is it based on socioeconomics? Is it based on, and I think the one thing that I guess people should appreciate is like, even if you think the data lines up such that it's not actually um, skewing racist in terms of police brutality, like whatever your belief on that is, if someone grew up hearing that it was, your your data isn't going to persuade them. And to the effect that you think they're dumb for that, that's how everyone finds their religion. So like, just, I guess, have some empathy for people who are like, I'm being gunned down and hunted in the streets. And you're like, no, look at this pie chart. It's like, listen, your pie chart might be right. It might be wrong. But the person feels that way for the exact same way that religious people find their religion and you find what you're Patriotic looking for in a sexual partner. Exactly. Why you think that... your country is the best country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And some people are listening to this and going, well, I'm an atheist and I don't think my country is the best. So some people can not think this. And you're right. And some people, by the way, grow up in this culture, but don't think this. So you'll, you'll find black Americans saying that, it's not necessarily racism that's leading to all of this uh, police overrepresentation and yeah, yeah. But when you find someone who does think that, I'm just saying like, this is why it's the exact same. <laughs> it, it, this culture, when you hear it from uh, the time you're a child, is is impossible to shake with uh, hearing some numbers yeah, from yeah. CNN or Fox News or whatever. So. Basically, just yeah, have empathy for people when you're discussing with them when they disagree with you. Yeah, we talked to Brett Weinstein about this and the 
the thing that I think we agreed on is that uh, rapport is the most important thing. Feeling that someone is not there to shake you, hurt you, disrupt your most deeply held beliefs, but is a friend is super important. There was that guy who uh, disrobed several KKK members, the black journalist, mm -hmm. I believe, that was on the Joe Rogan podcast. And he did it not by telling them and showing them statistics about black people, but by slowly over time signaling through his behavior and his actions that he was a friend. Mm -hmm. And it was only with that rapport that he was able to penetrate that shell of belief that kept anybody else out and all the statistics. I mean, statistics bounce off of that shell. Yeah. You know, nobody cares. Uh, Yes, and I, I, we've talked about this, but so many of our beliefs about things that we have really, if you're not a climate scientist and you have a strong opinion about global warming, I think you need to pause and, and re realize that that is based on signals of authority and frequency that you've heard something. Mm -hmm. It is not based, unless you are a climate scientist who has read these papers or written them yourself, on any sort of deep uh, understanding that we ought to base things off. It's based off of a majority rule of your insular community. And maybe that insular community is the 97% of scientists or 93 that are quoted. But quite frankly, even when people bring that statistic up, I say 93% of who? Just to point out that they have no idea. <laughs> they heard that number on the news somewhere and have a really, really like heartfelt belief about this because they've seen a couple of pieces of anecdotal evidence and frequency. That's yeah. what I've seen. Frequency is everything, especially yeah. when you're little. Dude, you just brought in some nice transitions for two <laughs> topics. Do you want to go New York shooting and how the news covers things or do you want to talk about the CDC? I don't, I'm totally yours. Okay, let's talk about the 6% number. So, yeah. so this went this went pretty viral. CDC released a report, 6% of COVID deaths. Oh, should I saw Movid? How do I not get demonetized for mm -hmm. this? We I don't just, get demonetized anymore for COVID. <gasps> the Schmirus. 6% of the Schmirus uh, n does not have comorbidities, which means 94% of the people who died of COVID also had hypertension, a heart attack, pneumonia, respiratory failure, People, some people are latching onto that and saying that basically someone's already having a heart attack. They happen to have COVID, so they get marked as a COVID death to run the numbers up. Yeah. Other people, I think, are saying, which sounds right, pneumonia can be caused by COVID. Respiratory so, failure can so be caused by. So you wind up by, dying with a comorbidity, so even though it was like, I wasn't going to get you pneumonia. You didn't have pneumonia. Yeah. You get COVID. Then you get pneumonia. Yeah. Then you die. And now you have a comorbidity. Yeah. But if you hadn't gotten COVID, you wouldn't get pneumonia. Yeah. I think the truth probably lays somewhere in the middle, which is to say 100% of these deaths are not COVID. Someone had a heart attack and happened to have COVID, but also it makes total sense upon reflection that you would be healthy, get COVID, then have respiratory failure. And when you die, they say cause of death, COVID, cause of death, respiratory failure, but it's caused by the COVID. Well, there's a complete lack of context because it occurs to me that I don't know the comorbidities associated with brain cancer. Right. Because if you mm -hmm. get brain cancer, you might die with three comorbidities because you it you screws up all of your other systems. Yeah, You'd go through chemo and then you die of a, <laughs> of a cult. Yes. And so the comorbidity thing, again, it's I, I don't know. Here's my point. I don't know what to make of it. I have no context. I have no training in this and I have nothing to compare it. Well, to. this was going to be my number one takeaway is if you saw that six percent thing and, and are now convinced COVID's completely fake, I would tell you to pause. If you saw that six percent and said this has got to be bogus. And I'm going to dig until I find out why. Pause. Mm -hmm. Just realize you started with your conclusion and, and none of us are really fully understanding and it's somewhere in the middle. But I did find it. I did find a stat that no one is talking about that I did find interesting because I went I went straight to the CDC report because yeah. I don't like going to the news uh, and I'm going to read it. Forty eight hundred of the deaths, not just the no comorbidity deaths, all COVID related deaths. Forty eight hundred are people under 44 years old. So that's even if you had the heart attack or you had the 
whatever it is and you happen to have COVID, you're in that number, right? So this is like the highest number we could get, get. unless you're going to say that all the numbers are bunk because our way of ca capturing data is garbage, right? Sure. But so 4,800 people under 44 have died in the US total. If you go to under four, 54 years old, 13,000 people total, 54 from age zero to 54. Yeah. 40,000 people in 2019 died in car accidents. Yeah. 4 million people in the US were injured in car accidents. Yeah. It seems to me we would never remove all cars to prevent 40,000 deaths a year, right? Mm -hmm. No one would ever run with this. Hey, we're just going to get rid of cars. We're going to go to bicycles as in the US. It seems very surprising that people are still arguing that we need to further shut down. And I know some of these people will say that the numbers are low because we've shut down. Yeah. I personally, it seems like the data is pointing towards let people make their own decisions. Let people see the data. If you're if you have diabetes, if you're obese, you should probably be really careful. If you're 22 with no prior health things, you might die from COVID. But if you want to go to the gym or eat in a restaurant, I think you should have the right to. It, it seems like especially in the land of the free where COVID's already terribly not under control, that it's time to just go, OK, personal responsibility, personal choice, deal with this as you think. And to the extent that your recklessness kills your own grandparents, like that's on you. And if your grandparents think you're reckless and they tell you you can't come over, respect it. You know mm -hmm. what I'm saying? Yeah, well, obviously, so and I'll, I'll play devil's advocate because my instinct might, I think, lines up with you, but I will I will play the other side since there's no one here to do so. Mm -hmm. uh, you're not just going to kill your own grandparents. You're going to, you know, it doesn't doesn't follow familiar lines. It's very easy to spread. Uh, what I do think you you nailed is that we need to contextualize this compared to other things that kill people and try to find a way. OK, so we have speed limits with cars. We wear seatbelts. Mm -hmm. We do mitigate these things, but we find that the benefit of being able to commute in a vehicle is worth 4 million injuries and 40,000 deaths a year. Well, and the, de the death toll of being shut down is not zero, by the way, because it leads to increased poverty, exactly. joblessness, and also uh, increased depression. And also people who are sick aren't going to hospitals because they're so scared of COVID mm -hmm. that they're just getting sick from other stuff and dying from yeah. other stuff. So and, it's, and so when I talk to you, I... I uh, no, I know you're going to play devil's advocate yeah, just yeah. so we're not... I, I, I'll that. agree with you and I'll go, yeah, yeah, yeah and then we'll... we'll scream up and down about how we want to go outside <laughs> yeah well no but and what, here's what i'm saying though like my grandpa has had heart attacks is is you know older and i love him to death i don't want him to die i think that at some point though it has to be about him being cautious and me being cautious with him so like i'm going to my sister's wedding it was supposed to be 100 people seven people are going for the two weeks prior i'm gonna stop doing things that i think will give me a chance to get COVID, or i'm gonna like become more cautious because i'm gonna see my parents and they're they're not, you know, in their 30s. So mm -hmm. I think that that's a very reasonable way to handle this is not flippantly, but is with the sense that like if you who aren't going to go see your parents want to go to a restaurant every day next week, my responsibility as your friend is to say, hey, let's do phone calls and not hang out because I'm going to go see my parents mm -hmm. and they're not 54 or younger. So mm -hmm. they are at risk. Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to go see my grandpa. So for two weeks prior, I'm going to be very, very careful in my home. And the day before I see him, I'll go get a test. If it shows up positive, I'll call him and say, I love you so much, I can't come see you. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's not it's not to disrespect that the virus exists, but I think there's a way to be thoughtful that's not shutting down the entire country, mm -hmm. which is not costless either. Yep. I guess that's my point. I, I agree with you. I will, I will represent the other side. One, 
in terms of context, we haven't talked about long-term ramifications of this. Mm -hmm. So looking at the number of deaths might not at all address the main issue of coronavirus. That's and fair. that's why we need more than this. But what I will say is you can imagine two different worlds. There's a pandemic in one world and it kills 0.0000000001% of people. It's widely viral. It's going to get through everything. And you can imagine a world where there is a pandemic of a deadly disease that you continue to exist. And we might call that deadly disease the common cult, <laughs> you know, right? Sure. And we move through life and it doesn't have a vaccine and we're never going to get there. You can and it does kill people. And it kills people. You can also, and it, and it mostly kills old people. <laughs> you know, it's the cult. Mm -hmm. And the infirm and people who've been on chemo and all sorts of things. You can imagine another world with a virus that is just as viral, but has a has a kill rate of 10% or 15 yeah, or 20%. Yeah, Ebola or something. And is... You got to shut down mm -hmm. and you have to be draconian. And what I, I would encourage the people making decisions or, or advocating in any sort of platform to do is to try to find out which of those worlds we live in by diving into the data. Yeah. And I think and not we, go if there's a virus we can't or I, I there's think, a virus we must. I think when we didn't have any data, it made sense to shut down. Just go, mm -hmm. we don't know what this is. We know it's super viral. We don't understand the consequences of this. Let's be cautious. But it seems like as new information comes out, we should adjust our plan. And I guess I don't see that. I live in California. I see our governor go up and give a speech. And it's it's about a very slow strategy to open up with extreme caution, mm -hmm. as if we still don't know anything about the virus. And maybe I just don't understand the data I'm looking at. Maybe when I see 4,800 deaths for people 44 and under, I should realize that that's a huge deal. Well, I think, um, I think but it seems like they're not adjusting. No one's come out and been like, we were super cautious and we're glad we were cautious. We're going to be less cautious because we've seen the CDC data. You know what I'm saying? The governor, I've never seen the governor give a speech like that. Yes. And and so, well, the other thing, I don't think that the CDC data is necessarily, and again, playing devil's advocate, influencing the advisors that he has around him who are very close to the data, who didn't need this to be released, who have developed their opinions incrementally, mm -hmm. as opposed to, oh, the new CDC data came out. Let's, let's double back and reverse everything. What I do think seems plausible, if not um, very likely, is that reactions to the coronavirus are by government are very political and and i think you can predict someone's political allegiance with a high degree of certainty based, based on how on they react to what i just said <laughs> coronavirus uh and i think that is because and and we've seen this with regards to uh protests and riots and and also coronavirus the way that coronavirus unfolds has a noticeable effect on the polls of who will become the U.S.'s next president. For those of you not in the U.S., sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I know that this can get boring, but that is I think that's what drives it a lot, a lot of it. And so I think you're going to see very different corona potentially, depending on who wins, very different approaches to coronavirus the second week of November, because a lot of it has to do with <laughs> with you think there'll be a switch where how people talk I think about right corona. now what really drives policy about coronavirus is not a concern for life you think there's it's the election so, dude, there's so many things in america that we don't care about life yeah <laughs> we don't care i mean like we we will we will blatantly and flagrantly throw it away to go invade iraq or, or you know under the pretense of wmds and and so many people in our senate had voted for it we don't we don't care about the data we didn't want to hear what the u.n had to say now we care about the data mm. to me it seems that this is if not consciously, then subconsciously political mm. in its in its nature. And I think that once that incentive goes away because the election has been decided, so hopefully it's been decided in the second week of November, you'll see 
a different approach to coronavirus, which is less political because now there's four years and you just got to give that fight up and fight them again. Interesting. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, we'll see. Uh, yeah, I also, I guess I see, I see a lot and maybe I, I, this could just be the vocal minority on both sides, to be fair. But I see a lot of people talking about how they're, you know, anti-maskers. We should do nothing. This is a hoax. And I see a lot of people saying, like, we have to take this incredibly seriously and do everything we can to get no new COVID cases ever. And I guess I don't see a lot of people just saying, like, can we treat this like it's serious, but also like we have to live our lives around it because it's going to be around for a while and we've overreacted prior. You know what I'm mm -hmm. saying? Like, I'm not an anti-masker. I'm not. I'd want to look at the validity of masks. I want to just have a study done to show me how effective they are. Mm -hmm. um, if they're effective, I'm all for it. I don't mind breathing through a cloth. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And uh, funny enough, I feel like the fact that I'm at all saying that we should treat the virus like cars in the sense that cars kill people, but we keep them around is going to make me painted like an anti-masker. Because if you aren't on the if you aren't on towing the line for being yep. super left, then that makes you like far right yeah you well, know what the, I'm saying? the hill that i that i feel comfortable standing with you on even here is if you don't put this into context and that means context includes compared to other things that kill people and mm -hmm. how we address those that means compared to different age groups it also means context of deaths aren't injuries aren't long-term things like it, it seems like people just have a way that they want this thing to break yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that they read i think that's what we've been saying is like for political personal or confirmation bias reasons People have decided which way they want this thing to break. And there's not a lot of, okay, let's pretend that I was agnostic and I just wanted to do the right thing. Yeah. Now let's look at all the data and ask all the questions that I would need to ask if I were really trying to like just do the rightest thing I could do. Uh, yeah, that's, that is a rare thing. And it's not, it's not what I engage in on a day-to-day -day basis. On day-to-day, -day, you know me, I complain that I can't go outside and I just get angry that I, well, I can't I do the things you, I want to do. I don't think you would if you thought that it was... Uh... I think that's implicitly in the fact that you don't think it's going to no, kill you. No, it's it's because I'm not I'm not on a camera. It's because the way that we communicate as friends is is not the way that we communicate when we're just when we know that we're presenting ideas to a larger community. Sure. But I think every single group of people, the way that you speak to your friend is going to just be less guarded, concerned. You're going to say things that you don't mean it in order to get a laugh. You're just going to complain because you can commiserate over how this is such a pain. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. And you would never do that in, in a larger group format. So that's the difference that I see in myself when, when we're here and when you and I walk around and I'm just like, uh, I want to go. I don't want to do this. I want yeah, the spa yeah. to open. I just won't care. I will I will get coronavirus if I can go to the sauna. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, do I well, really yeah. mean that? Uh, maybe. I feel like for myself, at least, I started on a lot of these issues like very, very hard uh, in agreement with the more liberal side of things. And yeah. then I like slowly peel my way back to the middle. So like, for instance, when we were talking about how the military had been sent into Portland, I was like, this is insane. This is fascism. This is Nazi Germany. Completely unacceptable. Then our neighborhood got destroyed by mm. the riots and uh, National Guard got sent in. And I was like, thank God you're here. Yesterday, my building was set on fire. Well, no, that was, you're getting the order reversed, actually. Really? Yeah. They came here first. No. 100%. Really? 100 by months. You'd forgotten about the National Guard. Interesting. You'd Maybe it's because they were unmarked versus marked. It was because they were unmarked and you read an article on Reddit 
and you got stoked up into a fury based and you forgot your lived experience. And Interesting. then and then you watched Brett Weinstein and you'd completely change your opinion, which is to say you were never in Portland. Yeah, this yet is, you had two strong opinions about Portland. This, and forgot is why why you straight, had it. this is why I went straight to the CDC. Someone <laughs> yeah, yeah. sent me an article. I, I don't even know if it was by Fox or CNN, but I was just like, no, no, <laughs> I can't. Yeah, I, that that's and that's a good demonstration. And you just did what everybody does. And I do, which is like. I don't know why I hold the opinions that I hold. I think I know why I held them, but really it was just because I heard a thing that that I identified with. Do, do you want to talk about media manipulation, the article you sent me today? No, I actually, I think we've, we've beaten that to death. If you want to, I can. No, no, I just thought it was interesting. Got it. So I have other things that are semi, not at all related. I'll take it back. And if you want to stay on this topic, feel free. I thought it was mildly interesting, but okay. we can, we I'll, can, we I'll can tell you. On. Yeah, I, I feel like I, be, I, I constantly bludgeon the news yet continue. I feel like an abusive or the abused party in a couple who was like, he's so bad to me. And then it's just constantly going back, back, back. And at some point I have to go, okay, I am not going to do this anymore. <laughs> I will control my own behavior. But I was looking at some of the news that was coming out. There's been a uh, violent weekends in Chicago and New York. And I read just one article about the New York. I was like, what's going on over there? And you can cut the statistics a number of ways. Long story short, crime is tremendously down over the 10 and 30 year periods. It is, up over the two year period, which is to say compared to last year by like 50 to 100 percent when you're talking about gun violence and gun deaths. So gun shootings are up like 200 percent in New York City. Uh, but luckily, they hasn't resulted in 200 percent more deaths, like 50 percent more deaths. Crime in other areas is, is widely down rape, etc. So you go, oh, is crime up or down in New York? Well, of course, that's a complicated mixed bag to start with. But in any event, I'm reading this article that is about the spree of gun crime in New York that had a very uh, a weekend full of shootings. And it occurred to me because I've been reading I've been reading the news that there was no mention of race or skin color at any point in this article. And this was a longer article. And I'm so used to seeing black, white, like like these are uh, critical things to know about a circumstance. Sure. The race of the victim, the race, the race. of the person who did the shooting and it's completely not there and there's literally a suspect at large that is that is in there suspect is 170 pounds six feet tall anything else <laughs> <laughs> you know like 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 noticeably absent yeah yeah and and my thought which i don't this was one article by abc news i went these race uh relations are being stoked to a fever pitch war like this is this is conspicuously absent here such that i can only determine abc when i read your next article about a white cop who killed a black man that you are not interested in race with the exception of the times where it causes really serious racial tension and potentially riots and it made me very angry at the news to read this now i haven't it's a hot take because i haven't stepped back and compared multiple articles this could have just been this is why i kind of didn't want to talk about it but I did send it to you because I was like, oh, my God. Yeah, yeah no, we, I mean, we don't have to go deep in it. I just thought it was interesting. There there was, uh, what was the stat? Six people dead, 50 injured or something. Six shooters. I, I forget exactly what it was, but it's like, it's a lot of people. A lot of shootings are happening in New York uh, over one weekend. Let me see if I can get the data. It was... 51 victims, six dead in a weekend of shootings. And but of course, this all of this needs context. It needs to be compared to other weekends, previous times and previous years. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, uh, all I thought it, all I thought was interesting was the absence of any form of of mention of the race of the victim and the race of the shooter. Mm -hmm. I, that's all I thought was interesting. We don't have to beat it to death, but yes. it, it was just another. It made me realize uh, how much the news shapes the narrative, mm -hmm. I guess. You know, how much the feelings that we have about the events unfolding are 
we get told what to feel and yeah. then we feel it yeah because they're good at their job you know what i mean and i don't i don't think that the answer is watch the news with a critical eye i think to your point it's like if you don't trust it unplug from it yeah but i then i for you guys i go back because <laughs> <laughs> we have a pot well I, honestly if i didn't watch the news i i wouldn't have much to talk about yeah so so let's take a hard turn here sure. bella thorne her name has come up. She's been become famous in OnlyFans circles. And I, as an OnlyFans user, <laughs> am livid. No. <laughs> so I, if you don't know the Bella Thorne saga, she is, I actually don't know who she is. She is a famous person. I think she was a Disney star. Who joined OnlyFans and got a million dollars worth of subscriptions in her first day. And those, I believe, occur monthly. So she you know, made quite a bit of money. And then there were, I tried to find them. I only found examples. They could have been doctored. Sent photos out to people. And implied that they were nude. And there was an example of someone asking, are these full nude? And she said, yes, no clothes. Uh, she charged $200 for this. It was behind a paywall. And when people clicked, it wasn't a full nude. This well, caused... technically, technically accurate, right? No clothes. <laughs> what she did was waist up and she covered herself, I think. Uh, so it was like letter was, of the law, yeah, honest. Yeah, yeah, something like that. But again, it was... Uh, so she does that. And then a lot of people hit their credit cards and go $200. I did not get the product that I was promised or signaled. And, mm -hmm. and this would be false advertising in any other regulated industry. Uh, OnlyFans sees this, can't handle all of it. Their servers get shut down because they've got so many in requests. And they then put a limit on the amount of tips that women can receive. Well, anyone can receive on OnlyFans. It tends to be women uh, for pictures and it's, I believe 50 or hundred dollars. They're, they're still adjusting all of these things, but there was an outcry on Twitter of OnlyFans sex workers who were upset with Bella Thorne and Bella Thorne apologized. Uh, I did not need to do this. I was only trying to bring more attention. You can read the whole thing. She apologized to the OnlyFans sex workers. And I wish I'd asked, uh, Rebecca when we had her, what was conspicuously absent in my opinion. And I read seven articles was any mention of the customers <laughs> who had been lied to, who had to go to get their credit card money back, some of whom might still be having processing issues. It was, this is my income, and I am so sorry for affecting your income. It's like, that was somebody's income too, Bella. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The, <laughs> that was somebody's income, the, the money, $200 the that was sent that you to you. From them, yeah. And so my, I, I, I'm, I'm sad that maybe we'll have her back on sometime. Didn't ask this about Rebecca. What I saw was a, uh, not implying that she feels this way, a social media and Bella Thorne level lack of concern or respect for the men that were buying these photos. Mm -hmm. I saw no outcry for a, for an apology. It was not amplified in any of the media sources. And I do see in the media, the there appears to be a complete openness and a defense of and a wanting to move towards increased liberality with regards to sex work which i'm not at all against but i think you need to respect the customer as much as you're going to respect the provider if you're going to live in that world and i don't see that <laughs> that has not been my experience at least in this one incident and i don't No, i think that's fair i mean if i had to if i had to track just the recent trend you know i'm not not going to pretend that this is the history of the world but mm -hmm. the recent trend it seems to be a push towards not shaming people for creating OnlyFans content, but totally cool to just shit on simps. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, so yeah. it's like, yeah, we got to respect the OnlyFans people. This is how they make their living. It's their body. It's their right to do whatever they want. Mm -hmm. This person paying them, though, total chump <laughs> loser. Let's take a dump on them. Yeah, yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? That's the trend I see. I don't see people really standing up 
in large numbers, at least, and saying like, hey, hold on. Simp is a bad word. That's Simp that is guy's, a four-letter word. That's that guy's money. <laughs> and he can do whatever he wants with it. And he wants to support this person and form this online relationship. And that is no worse than you buying your uh, designer clothes. Mm-hmm. It's his money, his right. Stop shaming him. I've never seen anyone make that message. Well, let's make simp, simp uh, a slur, you know? Why? Yeah, yeah. Simp, simp is a slur. It's only used about men. I don't know why. I mean, you could imagine a world where that was a four-letter word that was not allowed to be said because it degraded men. But sure, and I'm not. I'm not even we'll sitting. I'm not even world. sitting here saying what I think should or shouldn't happen. But just what I see is the defense of the creator in terms of like it's getting less and less appropriate to shame an OnlyFans creator, mm-hmm. uh, and it's definitely that definitely is not seem to be getting extended to the mm-hmm. people that are. Well, this is paying them. <laughs> so this, I, I do believe that there's a large degree of. Uh, of not Rawlsian veil of ignorance morality that is behind these movements towards being kind to people. Mm -hmm. There is a wielding of power to defend oneself and advance your group's position in the world. And in this case, uh, obviously, and I don't fault them at all. Like if you're an OnlyFans and that's your job, I don't expect you to advocate for every other person on the planet. Like you, you got to protect yourself and say, Hey, you've affected my income with your Mm -hmm. crappy lying behavior. But I do think that, we sh- I, I just try to recognize and understand like, look, people are not being moral beacons when they ad- when they self-advocate, but yeah, yeah. doing it in the name of liberality and we have to become more open and accepting if that's if you're saying that, but you're not applying it to other people, then that's not what you're doing. You're self-advocating, which is totally cool. I have a video where I'm up there so upset that somebody copyright struck my YouTube video. We can't do this, you know, but like that's just me self-advocating. Yeah, yeah. That's not me solving the problems of the world or or wanting this to be a fairer system. And yeah. I totally understand that that's how process or improvements are made. But uh, there's just a there's a twinge of self-righteousness and this is a moral crusade which i which i really don't think is true it's mm. it's uh self-advocacy by groups that band together to to advance their interests which is totally cool just they don't care about <laughs> yeah, yeah the they, just they just don't care about <laughs> yeah everyone sure so uh, this is slightly related i listened to a podcast our friend paul recommended it uh i don't know how to say his name peter atia atia talked to a therapist a male therapist guy his name is r-e-a-l real or real i don't know how you i think it's peter atia peter atia um it's one of the recent ones and if you want to listen to it it's interesting he is he talks a lot about men and he talks about covert depression which i thought was quite interesting Mm. so if you take the big five personality trait study that jordan peterson is big on and you look at the differences between men and women you'll see that women test higher for trait neuroticism which is associated with depression and women are often more treated for depression than men He says that men experience covert depression, and it's because with women, feeling sad is does not unwoman you. Mm. It doesn't make you less of a woman, but being sad and helpless as a man makes you less of a man. Mm -hmm. So what he says is, okay, let's assume that there's this swing between when something terrible happens, you're going to go down. So if men go down, but they can't be there, they then need to swing to the other side into grandiosity, he calls it. So if we look at what we see, for instance, is when men get fired, instances of spousal abuse just track completely. Hmm. So he says, let's just assume, for an instance, that this is someone who can't feel depressed and has to then flip it. If we look at all the spousal abuse and look at what we see as increased use of drugs, uh, sexual acting out and, and abuse and anger and violence. If we look at that, men are just as depressed as women, but they just can't experience their depression as depression. They need to experience it as rage, anger, or some other more powerful or emotion. Power. Or power. 
they need to reassert power yeah. in it very like reflexively immediately. Um, and I thought that was interesting. And I, I, I think he has, at, there's a points that I disagreed with, which you can discuss, but I thought that he was right there. And I'm curious if you, if that makes sense to you or not. Can't ask me about sadness. Man. <laughs> I've been repressing sadness for decades. I've never been depressed. Yeah. <laughs> wrong guy I think wrong we have our answer. <laughs> I don't really get angry either though. Yeah. Like, well, so he, what he says is that, and even this, the self-improvement bug, which you and I have had in a big way is, and I think it's adaptive. There's nothing wrong with this, but he says, what self-improvement is, is you feel less than mm -hmm. and you go no more. I will be better than. Yeah, yeah, that's true. What doesn't happen is a return to like, we're all the same. <laughs> like, I'm not better than you. I don't constantly need to prove myself. I don't constantly need to find ways to stand above, beyond, be recognized. Uh, he talks about three kinds, I'll see if I can grab them, of what he calls false self-esteem. And I thought it was interesting because we, we talk about building these kinds of self-esteem as the building blocks sometimes. Performative self-esteem, what am I capable of doing? Mm -hmm. Other-based self-esteem, what do other people think of me? And attribute-based self-esteem, what do I have? I have a smart kid, I have this car, etc. I um, am strong, I assume. Is yes, I have a great body. I have a great body. Um, and none of it, and, and this is just a, I call, what I call self-love, he calls self-esteem. So we, we do agree. None of it is just like, I am. I am. I am good enough. I just yeah. am. <laughs> like, I'm just good enough as I am. Uh, and one of the points that he makes is that there's, rightly or wrongly, uh, women are included. It's very tough to not be a woman if you're a woman. Sure, there's, sure. there's no trial or tribulation that you necessarily need to go through. There is what we discussed this. You're not a, you know, there's this whore thing that can happen mm -hmm. that can knock you off. But with men, you got to prove it. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like you do not get there by default. And uh, that makes people feel not as much, which is I thought. Is that bad? This is my thought. So then I listened to this and I went, I, and he told the story, for instance, I'll give you a, a story because this was exactly my thought. I was like, I wonder if you're not setting the world up to live in this very soft, wonderful place where nobody needs to be tested or proved and everyone's perfectly enough as they are. That's not the universe that we live in with its demands. Well, and the only reason I ask is because I've heard other, so like Peter Tia, someone I've heard great things about, mm -hmm. admire, uh, but there's other people I've heard a lot about who seem to be admirable and they would advocate that to transition from a boy to a man using a trial that proves you're there is actually incredibly important yeah. and that it's one of the things we're missing is mm -hmm. is i don't even know what to call it but like a rite of passage yeah a rite mm -hmm. of passage yeah. like that idea that you did earn it and congratulations you're 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 full of merit or ability at this mm -hmm. point um so i'm not saying one's right or wrong but that's my immediate question is like do we do we need to live in a world where you're not well, trying yeah. to uh become something or grow into something we're not going to have that metamorphosis from a 10 year old to a man. My well, I don't think that that's exactly what he was advocating. But even what I do think he was saying is that you are enough the way that you are. And I very much agree in one spiritual level. But I, I do think that that sometimes can neglect the physical reality that we live in. Now, we're mm -hmm. all very lucky that we can go to the food store and purchase food. And, you know, I feel great because but even I feel great because I can financially provide. It's like that's necessary. We need some sort of stick to drive us towards these things. Well, or not. I mean, like I, I've always said, I don't mind if you want to just, if, if you don't want to change the way that you live, you want to eat garbage or do harmful drugs or mm -hmm. starve to death because you can't provide financially, like, but you just choose that. That's your right. I actually don't think anyone has to live a 
Sure, just good to, life no, no, by no. other people's just standards. To li- no, just to live, just to make it, just to have sustenance. Yeah, yeah. But if someone's like, listen, I just don't, I hate working so much that I'm just going to get by on food that other people give me while I play video games. It's like, okay, mm-hmm. you can have that choice. And then like how you feel about yourself will be a symptom of that. Mm-hmm. But uh, you don't necessarily get to also have high self-esteem if that's the choice you make mm-hmm. to like live off the charity of others and play mm-hmm. video games all day. Yeah. And I've talked in the past, mm-hmm. I'm a, I like video games. I'm not trying to uh, poo-poo them. But I'm just saying, yeah, you have that right. You can just live off the charity of others while you do nothing. But then like your self-esteem will be what it will be. You know what I mean? You, I think it's tough to to live that way and also have incredibly high self-esteem and be proud of yourself for the way you live. I agree. This is why I prefer the distinction between self-esteem and self-love, which is to say self-love, I think you can have at any point, in any place, in any anything and just be like, I am that's enough. It can be the beginning of your self-improvement journey. Can or be, the end. Can be yeah, the, self, the alpha can be, and the omega. Yeah, can be full of self-love while you recognize that you're yeah. not proud of who you are. And out of love for yourself, you're going to grow and change and become someone you're proud of. Mm-hmm. Like, that's what I would advocate. And we we might be having a semantic disagreement with someone that isn't here, which I suspect we are. But so so he might just have different words for all of these things is what I'm, that I'm saying. But he tells a story about his son. Uh, his son was playing hockey. He, he skated cleated him up put on his skates he went out there he complained about his feet he said keep skating you know don't quit he was 10 years old he came back at the end of the game he took his skates off he realized he put them on the wrong feet and he'd given his son yeah so he had really bad blisters and he reflected he said you know if if this was my daughter justinia instead of my son justin would i have behaved differently Mm -hmm. and the answer to my shame is yes and i went i understand what you're saying i wish you had done that but life even when the cleats are on the right way, can can create blisters and hurt sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I, maybe I should, haven't let go of the idea that little boys need some gentle but training to deal with life's blisters. Now, we don't want to inflict them needlessly by putting their skates on wrong, and mm-hmm. could you have looked at it, but let's pretend that the skates were on the right way and he was still getting blisters. Do you pull him out of the game and say, we're not doing this? <laughs> you know, He can't skate anymore. He's got bad blisters. We're not going to do it. Like, is that good for that little boy? I'm not convinced. And I don't know that at least on this podcast, he addressed the fact that the world is painful, is not easy, requires grit, requires suffering in order to move through it in a way that uh, keeps you alive. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I do worry sometimes with this Boy, I need, I have to ask this question. Would I do this to my daughter? Would I do this to my son? And if the answer isn't identical, then I am somehow being sexist. I don't subscribe to that. I'm open to that idea. But the the idea that boys and girls ought to be raised the same seems to me a dangerous one. Well, I mean, the other thing is like, if the person doesn't like ice skating, don't force them to play hockey. But no, you don't have to. at some point, no matter what the sport is, whether it's basketball or violin, or guitar, you're going to have blisters on your hands. Mm-hmm. And like, I metaphorical, think, you might not get blisters, but you won't want to. It will become difficult. It's going to hurt your way. fingers. It will become somehow difficult mentally, emotionally, or physically. Yeah. No, no, I think like, I don't know, I'm not a parent, but my thing would be if you don't like hockey, you don't have to play hockey. But if you yeah. are quitting everything that you do because it gets hard, we have to sit down and have a talk about the value of doing something when it's hard. You yeah. know what I mean? Because uh, you're not going to like being an adult. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you're not gonna like the results of your life yeah uh if you continue with this mindset that as soon as it's hard you quit i feel like i'd like david goggins to sit down and talk to this guy because just i just bash heads it, against each other yeah well to see maybe they would maybe they wouldn't but it was david goggins whole thing is embrace the suck 
It's got to be mm-hmm. hard. The blisters are your your thing. And I do not sign up for that. I'm closer to this other guy. <laughs> like, take my skates off. I quit. Well, that's why I think it's <laughs> nice to let people try stuff. Because, like, mm-hmm. you get... If I were playing guitar, something that I never found joy in, and my hands started to hurt, I'd be like, I don't want to do this. When I was training for MMA, I would get literally punched in the head, which does hurt. And they'd be like, you okay? And I'm like, yeah, let's keep going. The round's not over. Because I mm-hmm. wanted to push through. Does that make sense? And yeah. I think at some level, maybe you have to instill that in a child that it's it's worth pushing through for things. Yeah. But for an adult, if you're an adult listening to this, yeah, I mean, I think there's hopefully you find things that you like enough that, that give you the joy or the outcome or the satisfaction or the esteem or whatever it is that you find it. You want to push through the pain. Well, what you about the I mean? difference like, between boys and girls? This is one of my question. Like, do you do you have the same standard or want, should one? I know we're not parents. Right? I mean, I, so yeah, my, I'm so limited, right? I'm a boy and I don't have any kids. The you only person sister, I can look yeah, yeah. to is my sister. She's tough as shit. She's just as tough as I am. Mm-hmm. Um, my parents certainly didn't raise her. That's not true. You don't think so? I, Steph is tough, but she's not anywhere near as tough as you are. You went into a cage fight, man. In high school, she was. In high school, she was hitting people with lacrosse sticks and stuff. We were doing, I was playing lacrosse, basketball. Girls lacrosse is not boys lacrosse, man. she's not anywhere near as tough as you are i was playing basketball and volleyball in high school Mm -hmm. exactly the same as field hockey and lacrosse steph is not anywhere near as tough as you are maybe not now we were in high school you know okay so i don't i I can't i'm trying to recall back to this and this is not an insult to her but i i do think yeah dude of course not i do think how could anyone be as tough as me you're really freaking tough <laughs> like you fight people fought <laughs> fought retired people uh busted your hand punching someone you know nearly needed surgery uh i'm not knocking her yeah, at yeah. all but i do think that sometimes we can say wow she's just as tough as me in order to is that do you really think that's true i don't know maybe you're saying she's tougher on the spectrum here's what i would say on the bell curve of men and women oh yeah 100 she's 100 further towards tough for women I, I am for men. Yes, I think that might even be true. But then you're saying put that put everyone on the same bell curve. Yes, that's like saying Steph is taller than me because she's yeah, taller. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's not. All right, that's fair. So maybe I was saying she's tough relative so to this, her teammates. Exactly. And this is the crux of my question is are like, I think that boys and girls on average, not every single one. This is so important. If you're six foot five and you can deadlift and you want to carry people out of burning buildings and you're a woman, fantastic. That's amazing. But uh, comparing people to the same spot on the bell curve and saying that she is tougher than me, I think is a really, it's flawed. It's a really not good way to make decisions about the world. Yeah, that's fair. I think also your self-assessment and your assessment of other people might get frozen in time. Sure. Which is to say like, I wasn't tough growing up. So myself, as much as I joke, like I wouldn't necessarily describe myself, uh, using my 33 years of life experience Mm -hmm. i think you if you're like yeah how tough are you or how athletic are you i might ping back to when i was 16 Mm. and i don't know i'm not saying i do or don't but like there's certainly that's a possibility in Mm -hmm. terms of my own self-assessment that it might not update as regularly as i get older you know what i mean Yeah, yeah it might be caught in the times that i got beat up as a kid or whatever and be like oh yeah no i'm uh weak because yeah. <laughs> even though I yeah. want because uh, put it this way I want to fight at 28 sanctioned fight in a cage both people agreed to it I lost a fight at 12 <laughs> I lost a fight at 10 yeah, you know yeah, what yeah. I mean um, 
so yeah who i mean i guess maybe in my mind i'm one two yeah yeah you know what i mean you're only four foot ten yeah i got yeah. you <laughs> so who knows I, is, I mean but i mean that genuinely like perhaps my own self-image is is frozen in time to some extent mm -hmm. and all the self-improvement has pulled it up but i think all of us have inaccurate views of ourselves to yeah. some degree maybe mine's just caught back in high school sure so and when I was just reading this thing to, to return back to it, I, I had simultaneously a feeling of agreeing strongly with a lot of what he was saying. I was like, wow, I do think that there's more depression in men than is recognized. And the flip to grandiosity, I think, occurs more reflexively in men because there is a complete lack of safety, feeling shame mm -hmm. or vulnerability, which is I can relate to. Um, and it would be healthier if men could recognize that state more and recognize the the bounce to like, I got to be better than, do better than, and how unhealthy that is and unsustainable that is in the long term. Um, but also there was a degree of the question, would I raise my daughter this way? I don't think is necessarily the right question yeah. to ask. Like, I don't think, and and well, let me now take the other side, I suppose. Maybe it is the right question. Maybe boys and girls needed to be different a thousand years ago <laughs> when it was uh, physical attributes were literally what kept you alive. And if there was a war, like you, you needed to do that. And maybe today where that stuff has shrunk and matters much less, maybe boys and girls can be raised more similarly. And this idea of men being so different from women was for a time that is long past. Well, I, I mean, I'll, go, I'll say something that sounds like this person might not agree with. I'm not convinced that using uh, your failure, your sadness, your anger, whatever, as fuel for self-improvement is a bad thing at all times. Mm -hmm. Maybe if you've been doing it for 15 years mm -hmm. and you've got everything looks good externally, but you're miserable, then it's time to like stop and stop using that stuff as fuel. But I'm not sure that at 16, that's not a good idea. It's just to go, I'm mm -hmm. frustrated with my circumstances. Maybe my parents don't have the money that I want. And so I'm going to use that to get great grades, get a yeah. scholarship, get out of this shitty neighborhood and be successful. And I'm going to use that as fuel till I'm 25. Mm. And then I'm going to go, I'm really hard on myself. It's time to start to work on self-love. I'm not sure that's the worst thing for someone who's lower class at 16 growing up in an area that they hate and they have hatred for their surroundings, the way they're braised or they're bullying or whatever yeah. versus embracing it and crying, like embracing their no, he would agree sadness. With you. He, so I, you're, you're phrasing it this is a good point a different way. He says the adaptive child is the maladaptive adult. And so what it's to say is everything has a season. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying. If and you it, need to do like, that at 16. And if you've never done it, if you're 30 and you've never done it, yeah. if you're 30 and mostly you've been apathetic and you're finally going to take how you feel about yourself or your body or your relationships or your job or whatever mm -hmm. it is and use it as fuel for the first time, that seems pretty appropriate. Just, yeah. Like, So I don't think it's an age thing necessarily. I think it's a phase thing. I have friends who did use that as fuel for a decade, made themselves wealthy, but continue to pursue the same thing they never adjust or they never reflect on is this working what anymore? their fuel yeah. what their <laughs> yeah. fuel is you know what i mean and they've gotten themselves out of their childhood bullying or poverty or whatever it might be and they're still running the same pattern that guy should probably like soften up some, somehow <laughs> yeah, yeah, like yeah. soften up or do some therapy do some child reflection but yeah, I mean, I, I really think that there's a time where it makes total sense to use this stuff as fuel to improve your external life yep he would agree. I, I, that was the strong sense that I got. He's speaking to Peter Atia, who is apparently by his own admission, like hyperachievers done all these amazing things, but is a ball buster and way too hard for where he's arrived at in his life. Does not to be so, does not need to be so aggressive, yeah. impatient and win, win, win well, given his current station. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess that's the thing. That's the interesting thing about Goggins or this person 
Who, it sounds like it wasn't even Dr. Atiyah. It was whoever was speaking to no, him. No, right? sorry. To be clear, Dr. Atiyah Dr. goes to this guy as a therapist. His Got name it. is something so real or right Okay, now. so there's like this therapist, there's Goggins. Yeah. Um, the idea that these different solutions are for different people in different phases, mm -hmm. I feel like is the answer. You mm -hmm. know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like to be Goggins all your life could be very <laughs> self-destructive or yeah, stressful yeah. depending on who you are. I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe it's great. But it seems to me like there's, yeah, depending on where you're at in life, a time to fuel personal development change the world conquer the world and then there's a time to like hug yourself nurture your inner child reflect mm -hmm. on your childhood you know yeah it's kind of we let's move on in just a moment but it really does remind me of the tension between politics and conservatives and liberals which is to say what i what i think is sometimes lost in these you're doing it wrong is like no that the, the past has a reason. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there was a good reason that you needed to get ahead and not be second place and not take no for an answer. Like it made total sense. And that's the conservative view is like the traditions and the ways that I've done thing have deep value and I can't just throw them out. And then the liberal side of things or the left side of the left side of things <laughs> <laughs> is, yeah, but not today. Like we've, yeah, we've, yeah. we've moved past that and we can let go. And then of course there's a tension of recognizing what you can't let go of, reviewing it and then moving towards something new. So. Cool. Cool. Do you want to go to questions? Let's do it. Yeah. Cool. Um, first one um, is it, it's a two-parter that are totally unrelated. <laughs> um, first one is Jordan Peterson is quite misunderstood by many people, as Joe Rogan often points out. From a charisma perspective, what could Dr. Peterson do better in order to be misunderstood less? I have. Uh, do, you, do you want to go? Or I'm, I'm sure. I mean... I'm not sure how often he's misunderstood versus purposefully misinterpreted. That's my first reaction is I mm -hmm. think he does have charisma things that he could do better, but I think he's certainly tries to choose his words very carefully so that he's not misunderstood mm -hmm. and often is. And mm -hmm. I think that that's because a lot of times if you're going, if someone is arguing something you don't believe or something that you want to defeat, there is a serious advantage to mischaracterizing their argument, especially when they're not there. Mm -hmm. So like a news media, a YouTube or whatever it is, when they're misunderstanding Jordan Peterson so that they can defeat his argument and promote a belief counter to his. I don't think that's on accident. Yeah. I, so that's my first thought. So I what I see in him is that he doesn't build bridges. Uh, he states what he believes without... And I know that he can, but he just it's just his habit without thinking, how is this going to connect to where you're sitting? So if he's mm -hmm. sitting across from someone who deeply believes that there is an that there is a wealth gap between men and women, and it's completely unfair and it's based on sexism. And this data shows it. And he has looked deeply into the data and has found that there's a whole confluence of reasons and it's different job choices and all these kinds of things. So he knows where she is. He knows where he is. This is Kathy Newman. And he just says, well, it's just not the case. And what he doesn't say is, I can understand why you would think that because you are right. If you were to break down the wealth gap and just do a you know division by the number of people, you'll actually see that there's a 21 cent. Like he doesn't mm -hmm. build that bridge, acknowledge where they come from. He just states his side. And then when they come at it, he goes, well, that's not the case because X. Well, that might be a good strategy in today's day and age, because if he started his argument with you are right and then gave his thing, he would just get clipped. Someone mm -hmm. would just take his six second thing. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think it, I think there's a it's it's a really really sad state of affairs, but you have to be so careful with what you say because people will purposefully remove all the context around your sentences. Sure. You know what I'm saying? Sure. So I'm I'm considering that 
isolated, continuous incident that cannot be cut from the camera. Let's assume that we saw the entire Kathy Newman interview. And if he had faith that it wouldn't be clipped up, mm -hmm. that would be what one wanted to do was build a stronger sense of rapport by recognizing where they're coming from, saying how if you know, if you had their data, you'd think the same thing. You know, yeah, yeah. I could see why you would say that. Uh, what's interesting, you know, and you're not you're you're dumb for this. And I think that would take him very far. I often see that he he knows the rebuttals that they're going to have and just waits for them to say it instead of preemptively disarming mm -hmm. a lot of that stuff in a way that doesn't make them feel caught or stupid when they say stuff to well, him. I think this is the truth. There's two there's two versions of charisma. There's interpersonal charisma mm -hmm. and there's what I call thank you for smoking charisma. Yeah. Which is to say, is Jordan Peterson trying to convince Kathy Newman? Or is he concerned about the audience of hundreds of thousands or mm -hmm. millions of people watching? Yeah. Because it might be two very different strategies. And if I'm trying to convince the million of people that are going to watch the interview, I might necessarily have to take different tactics than if Kathy Newman and I are at a bar with no cameras around. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Sure. I feel it on the podcast even. Like it's so hard to try to caveat enough times that people For an audience, yeah. understand your context. Yeah. Uh, I felt it with, when we we're talking about the Schmovid. Like mm -hmm. there, I, I, I don't even know how to say enough to get people to uh, be charitable or understand that like this isn't an attack. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so I think Jordan Peterson might just go, people are going to take me out of context. It is to my detriment to say, you're totally right. There is a wealth gap. But here's the nuance of the wealth gap. And he might skip that first sentence on purpose because mm -hmm. he's like, well, I'm just going to eat the Kathy Newman relationship. I'm just going to let it be bad yeah. so that bad actors can't take me out of context yeah and i'll say and and again this is all in the spirit of, of positive uh criticism of him if he if he cared not that he ever necessarily would but if somebody feels like you're like him i do think that he additionally uh he is so literal he is so serious when mm -hmm. he speaks all the time uh when he's i've seen him laugh there's a theo von compilation yeah. which is like oh my gosh look at him he can he can crack up he can really laugh but he does that so infrequently and only with an excellent comedian to his side that the degree to which he could joke add levity to yeah. his discussions uh playfulness and not that stern staring back wooden face what well, might be the cost of his genius I I, th I think Jordan Peterson might be like that off camera. Like oh no, that's no no no. That's who he is. I, he's I, a genius, and he's very scared about Marxism and all this stuff. He lives in a world of, um, I think, like seriousness and stakes, such yeah. that I don't think he makes. I might. I could be totally wrong. I've never met him in person, but I I don't think that's a strategy. I think that's just like I don't think how so. he operates in the world is with that sternness. I totally agree. I mean, because I've seen him on Joe Rogan, and even on Joe Rogan or any of these other guys that he presumably is comfortable with, he doesn't, he's got to talk shop the whole time. Mm -hmm. They don't just shoot the shit almost ever. And that's, I, th I think that that would help him to bridge gaps between people that, yeah. that disagree with him. And you'll see it in conversations in your own life. If things get heated and you can insert a joke that gets a laugh, it just, it just like, takes so much of the tension out of the air and mm -hmm. and that's not something that he's going to do so that's not a criticism of him but if you wanted to know why he's misinterpreted it's because other people are interpreting him as an enemy and he's not signaling in a very comfortable way that he's not mm. um doesn't mean that he is he's just not overtly telling them, no 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 i'm your buddy i'm your friend yeah so hope that helps uh the second one is I find myself going through a distasteful cycle with my friends where they do something I disagree with and then I find myself not wanting to be friends with them anymore even though I know I will come around to enjoying their company again. 
For example, the other night, my friend and I got into an argument about walking around downtown St. Louis late at night. I reasonably stated that St. Louis is one of the most dangerous cities in the U.S. and we shouldn't. However, after arguing, we ended up walking around due to my friend's stubbornness anyways. It ruined the night for me, not because I felt unsafe, but because I had lost the argument and my ego had been bruised. Given that I'm the common denominator, what can I do to not resent my friends when they do something that makes me want to distance myself from them? Do you want to go? Do you want sure. Me to go? No, I mean, I have a thought. I saw this question ahead of time because it's a Patreon question, so I wrote down my thoughts. Uh, I think that basically you can release the resentment and go on the walk. You can also release the resentment and part ways. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I think that you're an autonomous human that can make your own decisions and so are they to the extent that you can persuade them to your side using charisma or persuasion or whatever. That's great. But if you do hit a, a roadblock, it's totally fine. Just be like, listen, I love you. This is a terribly dangerous city. I'm not going to go on this walk. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to go home instead. But good luck. I'm hoping nothing bad happens to you, but do it in a way that's not resentful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can also be like, you know what? I think this is a terrible idea, but I want to continue the night. I want to keep hanging out with you. I'm going to roll the dice on this. But you didn't strong arm me into it because I'm still an autonomous adult. So I'm making this decision on my own. And so I'm not going to resent you for it either. So I think that the big thing to me is like they can't make you do it. So don't feel like you have to persuade them or else do what they say. There's Mm -hmm. a third option where you just separate. And I think if you give yourself that option, then maybe you'll have less resentment because you won't feel like forced into it. Like their stubbornness can't actually make you take action if you give yourself the option to just hug and part ways. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. I think resentment often arises when you feel someone has done something to you, which you are now cannot avoid. They Mm -hmm. have forced a feeling on you or forced a situation on you. And the degree to which you're saying that you just go, no, I have control of this is like the resentment won't really arise. Yeah, exactly. Because they they're going on a walk (laughs) and and you don't need them not to you don't need them to like but the degree to which you need to control them then you can't that's where the anger and resentment builds up another brief recommendation is check out a new earth by Eckhart Tolle uh I'm going to recommend it in the next video (laughs) audible.com slash charisma but you can read it as well it is really good and the one thing that I remembered I should read it again because it's not second nature to me at this point but he talks about the feeling that you get when you are made less than and how you can feel just like this this doctor was talking you could feel yourself shrink on the inside you feel less than and then oftentimes you feel yourself explode out and that's Mm. the ego going you've wounded me like i'm the best (laughs) (laughs) i won't recover you have to listen to me yes and that's and that's the shame grandiosity cycle yeah and what eckhart says is just just watch it and if you pay attention like oh my god i feel myself shrinking and then you feel the anger like, and I feel myself growing. Yeah. <laughs> and it's uh, it's just a really useful process to watch just to see how it unfolds. And when you're in that observer seat, it, it tends to control you less. Cool. Uh, next one is, hey, guys, I'm starting my first year of teaching, and I'm wondering what kind of advice you would give to teachers in general. Well, kids and teens aren't necessarily your demographics. I think it's fair to say you're both educators and charisma slash emotional mastery has a huge part in captivating and teaching an audience. Sorry, what was the first sentence once again? She's a- um, I'm starting my first year of teaching and I'm wondering what kind of advice you would give to teachers in general. Got it. So this isn't a charisma point, but I think when it comes to teaching, certainly like our success has come from packaging our information into something that's fun to watch. Mm-hmm. And I just recently saw an MIT professor who was teaching about... Um, conservation of momentum for angular physics and that sounds really boring but the way he does it is he spins a bicycle wheel sits on a chair that's on a rotating thing and then when he tilts the wheel it makes him spin Mm. and it's not because it's air resistance it's because of the and so anyway you're like 
that's really cool. That yeah, makes yeah. me want to learn this. And so if I had to teach anything, my thought would be, how do I make this interesting or fun to learn mm -hmm. so that the person wants to learn it? And I think back to some of the worst teaching experiences I had as a student were when someone was just forcing me to do this. And I was like, why do I have to read this? Because you have to. And it's like, okay, I was a kid who liked watching Shakespeare plays yeah. as a child. I like actually really enjoyed it. I was a loser. Uh, <laughs> when I was told to read a Shakespeare book, though, depending on the teacher, I would read the whole thing or I would absolutely not do it and just look up the wiki. And it was just based on if they made it think if, if they made me think it was going to be fun to learn or fun to do after if there was an activity that learning this material was going to let me participate in that was going to be enjoyable. That that's to me what I would do if I were a teacher and story is, you know, oh, you're going, how do I do this? Well, if you're a history teacher, story is going to be so much is going to be one of your primary tools, right? Because that narrative function is going to be what hooks people in. I think the worst way to learn anything and the least fun, though sometimes necessary, is rote memorization. Mm -hmm. And so I think back to trying to learn scales on an instrument. That's how you get people to quit an instrument mm -hmm. <laughs> is you teach them scales. Uh, if you wanted to stick with it, kind of teach them the old standards. And if you wanted to love it, teach them the, the basics of their favorite song, just yeah. the melody. No, find the most the simplest pop song that's popular in their age mm -hmm. demographic and learn them, teach them to uh, to play that. Just the melody. Yeah. And then you go, okay, we're going to work on the And You don't need to know the notes right now. Mm -hmm. You don't need to know any of the scales or the Dorian or the Phrygian modes. <laughs> you know, like, But that's what we started, not started with, but it was scales, I remember. Mm -hmm. And I still, I played the guitar. I played, for, I still don't know my scales <laughs> and it's time for me to learn. And now that I'm into it and I see that, oh, wow, if I if I learned these scales, I could solo. Mm -hmm. I'm actually starting to go back and and really like drill some of the scales and learn exactly where the notes are on the neck, which I had no idea for years and years. But I can play just fine. At yeah, this no. point. And I think, for instance, you're a history teacher. I remember hating to learn history, even though I loved medieval. Like I thought medieval times was so cool. Armor and knights and all yeah. that I thought was great. But I hated to learn history because it was just memorizing dates and places. Yeah. It was literally just like, where was this battle? Give me a city and a date. And then you look at Vikings, the History Channel TV show. Now, granted, some of it's kind of bogus. They have Odin show up as mm -hmm. the god. And like, depending on your religious beliefs, you think that's <laughs> fiction. But it shows you that people will voluntarily learn about it's the first time the Vikings sacked England. If you make it an interesting story. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I think there's just a way to add that into your teaching mm -hmm. in such a way that it's not Vikings level production, but that it's more captivating to people. Yeah, I'm trying to think if there's any additional things. So this is a weird one. The the way that this is, I'm going to I'm going to give the this is so meta right here. I'm going to do this the wrong way. And then <laughs> the way that people teach is general to specific. I just gave a general, but you have no idea what I'm talking about, right? Here's a specific. When I do the charisma videos, what I often try to do is show an example of someone doing something and the Bradley Cooper cracking a joke and then waiting and looking around while people laugh and how he gives everyone three seconds. And then I say, this is the three second rule that is specific to general. The way that people learn is specific to general. You give them an example, a thing or whatever, and then you teach them the rule. But once you understand something, it's often very tempting to start with the rule and just leave people completely lost, like I did when I started telling the story. Yeah. No, but, so here's the example of that MIT points. professor again. Yep. He he literally starts the class, I think, by being like, check this out. Yeah. You know what I mean? Uh, maybe it's not that bro-y, but it's mm -hmm. like, hey, look at this. Sitting on a chair, spinning myself with a bicycle wheel. 
why is this happening? Mm -hmm. And then he goes into the rule. You know what I mean? Yes. Specific example and or story comes first. Not like I did right here. <laughs> and then you tell them the rule. And that sticks with people in a much stronger way. Uh, are there other things that I've learned from these videos? I well, actually have a list. I was going to make a video on how to be a better teacher. I'll have to pull it up sometime. But I, I do have a list of things. That, and that was one of them that I've, that I've taken. So maybe next time we can talk about it. Yeah. I'm sure there's also a way to gamify it, which I never had a teacher do. But I'm sure there's a way to make learning fun, even when the topic's not fun, just because there's some sort of system in place that incentivizes you to keep learning or playing or doing whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The truth is, which is so, such a shame, is that you, you feel this way. I think most people feel this way. They graduate high school or college, spend a couple of years just not doing anything, then pick up a book or a thing and, and realize how much they love music or reading or learning. Oh, especially kids. <laughs> kids love to learn. <laughs> yeah. Kids and, and school just beats it out of you. Yeah. yeah. You the, start going, why? Yeah. Why? How? Yeah. Why? How does this work? Don't why ask. does this work? Just remember the date. Yeah. yeah. Don't just remember the date. Get the A. Uh, so there's a really good book by Ivan Illich. Uh, I forget exactly what it's called, but it talks about some of the problems with schooling back in the 70s. And it's the same as the Mark Twain quote that is never let my schooling get in the way of my education. And just mm -hmm. keeping that in mind that school is often a hindrance to the love and the passion of learning and then doing what you can to break it free of as many of the structures as you can within that environment to to keep kids love of learning alive. I feel like that's one of the best things you can do. If you can help a kid get out of high school or out of college with that fire of of loving learning mm -hmm. still there, you've done them a great service. And if you're the one that just snuffs it with dates and reading crappy Charles Dickens books, <laughs> like then then sh you know shame on you. Yeah. Why didn't we read Harry Potter? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> like <laughs> great expectations. I know somebody out there likes that book, but my God, no, that's a great point. That yeah, was why so bad? Yeah, why does it have to be an old book? Yeah, I, and yeah, this is a short one. But when I was learning math, my mom just made it pizza because I was I was you know four or something. Yeah. I like pizza, so it's like. <laughs> It wasn't it wasn't division it was there's a pizza yeah it has eight slices i eat half how many slices are left yeah. just kept my attention a little yeah, bit yeah. more because i was a kid and i was like pizza <laughs> no she'd been like the number eight divided yeah. by two yeah. is what i'm like why i don't care yeah why do i care <laughs> you, why would i ever need to do this yeah, yeah who cares and she literally just made a pizza and i was like i like pizza yeah yeah four slices yeah so cool Next one is my housemate and i are generally fairly comfortable approaching girls in bars and at parties etc although some of your charisma tips have certainly helped. But in cases where the female group size is bigger than ours, for example, two of us and four of them, and we want to strike up conversation with only two of them, it feels awkward. What are your tips for both striking up conversation with groups of, say, four girls when you are a pair of guys and how to keep the conversation rolling? We aren't crippled with approach anxiety, so we'll definitely try out any suggestions. Yeah, I mean, the easiest thing is don't try to approach just two of them. Mm -hmm. like, at least in the US, everybody's different. If you do this in Brazil, people will think that you're hitting on whoever you're speaking with. At least that's my experience. But in the US, if I'm one person and I want to go talk to a group of three people because one of them is attractive, I start by talking to all three and just ping around and try to be fun and make the whole group laugh and like me. Mm -hmm. And then that way, when you do inevitably say like, hey, I'm going to go to the bar. Like, do you want to come with me to the one that you're most interested in? The other two friends are like, yeah, do it. This guy's great. We're rooting for you. Mm -hmm. So I would actually say that the thing that's hurting you the most is this mindset that you have to go in and immediately extract the two people you're attracted to from their friends. I mm -hmm. think instead, just have the whole group like you and then the friends will be rooting for you. They'll try to set you up. Yeah, it's been a long time since I've been out at a bar, not just because of coronavirus, because of my advanced age. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I also have to admit, as soon as you said group of females, I heard the rest of the question in the voice of David Attenborough. 
and was just completely <laughs> a group of females here mm. you can see walking in the corner nice <laughs> so uh, recollecting as best i can one of the things that i do remember was important is as ben said speak to the group have a conversation that is high energy fun and is references the group as a unit like instead of like you can ask, of course, their individual names, but what are you guys up to? You know, that, yeah, that how do you guys know each other instead of walking right up and like, yeah. hey, you're really pretty. What's your name? What yes. do you do? And yes. it, it, acting like the friends don't exist. Yes. Just, oh, blah, blah, blah. Oh, yeah. How do y'all know each other? Yes. The group is a y'all at the beginning, which makes sense. After a period of time where people feel comfortable, what we also found is that it could feel strange as if there's two dudes over here and then four sounds like five, five girls over here. What you want to do is integrate the group to the best of, as you can yeah. so that you're not just two guys standing here asking questions answer question answer and so one of the guys for you, people listening on yeah. spotify because you can't see what he's saying just picture like civil war armies in yeah. a line that's often what happens one group on one side one group on one side facing each other yes unmingled and once and you can even say be like this is strange we i feel like this is a you know sixth, a high, grade, dance. sixth grade dance we got the boys on one side the girls on the other and then just have somebody walk to the other side and go, okay much better i feel like an adult now or whatever you can you don't need to use them out the words the point is to integrate the group in such a way that it that it becomes genuinely a more organic group and mm -hmm. this way it's not your group asking their group questions now this can subdivide into separate conversations where one friend talks to two or three and the other friend asks two or three questions it and, just feels more organic yes yes um and at that point then then you can start to have individual conversations or again you can subdivide you can be a pizza that <laughs> that goes into slices yeah. as opposed to halves yeah. that need to address the other one but the friends are your are your friends and allies they're not your enemies to be mm -hmm. uh cut away from the group i think that mindset shift will help a lot mm -hmm. cool uh last one is i actually i have a question for you guys i have a younger brother who feels like everything has to be funny even at the expense of others and often at my own expense and an optimistic mom who seems to follow his lead. So it's extremely hard for me to be taken seriously by my mom when my brother's around and it pisses me off. What advice could you give me? Break his legs. Do we, do we not answer this one already? No. We oh, answer I'm, similar ones. but that's, I must have read it. So I feel like I'm having deja vu. Okay. Do you go have ahead. No, no. I just was like, didn't we do this last week? I don't know if you have the answer. You go for it. So it's it's a guy that's teasing him and a mom that just goes along with it. And his question is, my brother's upsetting me, making me angry. Yeah, pissing me off. Right. I feel like a broken record. Yeah, so what I would do is I would wait until it wasn't the moment when emotions <laughs> weren't high. I would uh, wait until the mom wasn't around. I'd get the brother aside. I would frame it in a way where they could tell it was a different type of interaction. So I would come in and say something like, you know, hey, I want to grab you for a moment. There's something I've kind of been wanting to talk we to need, you about. We need to make a video that just references this because it's so often people ask, how do I deal with a, a personal yeah. relationship in my life? And it's exactly what Ben is saying, which is separate the person. Yeah. Go ahead and continue. Go, no, you create a different frame where you, you where the person knows this is a, a unique conversation relative to the ones you've had in the past. It doesn't have to be a big deal. You don't want to walk up and say, hey, there's something really serious I need to talk to you about. But you just create a frame and then you talk, you talk about uh, facts and feelings. So whenever you're talking about something that someone's doing to upset you to the extent that you blame them say hey you're mean they're going to fight you on that and feel defensive to the extent that you even say like you were a jerk that's not a fact uh so you just say facts and feelings you made this joke and it made me feel bad about myself you said this sentence and you just say word for word what it was and it made me feel i would just blah, correct blah, blah. i felt not it made me oh sorry yeah, 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 yeah yes yes i and i felt blah 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 yeah yeah definitely and uh and that way they can't um 
push back on you because facts are facts and your feelings, everyone's entitled to feel whatever you feel. So you cut through the defensive part and then you can have a conversation that's more based around um, the behavior that you are experiencing and and how you uh, would like it to change. Whereas if you go in and you talk about what they're doing wrong or you label them badly or something, it becomes an argument. And then give them a concrete ask, which is, can you in the future not do this specific behavior Mm -hmm. or add this specific behavior? Uh, And then that's that. Mm -hmm. Cool. Facts and feelings. That's all we got until or for a non-patreon questions all right thank you guys so much so we last month we came close uh the final billing day we did dip beneath our required 1200 for four episodes we're going to continue to do it but to the degree to which you guys are enjoying this and want to add to patreon it would mean a lot to us because we'll hit that 1200 justin will be a happy man (laughs) (laughs) he'll get paid uh he'll get paid regardless not that i'm not happy (laughs) but yeah so it, it it really does it's funded the podcast you guys have been literal life support for this podcast and to the degree to which it exists at all into the future thank you guys so much so for those of you who are already patrons thank you if you'd like to join please click that link in the description and we have some bonus questions for you also i will say if if you're arriving here at the end of this podcast you are a patron you're not a patreon person please let us know what perks you might like because as we shift into you know please keep this podcast alive with with your donations to okay what's in it for you other than these podcasts i do want to know what you guys care about is it a book club is it an ability to vote on topics is it i don't know answering questions conversations been playing the guitar for you oh, God. Audio game <laughs> no and for, for i game think for, so just so people are aware just so twitch you, streaming well just so you know so so uh 1200 a month lets us have Justin come once a week. 4000 a month would let Justin be full-time on this podcast, which would allow him to focus on it, make it his full-time uh, thing that he put his love and attention to. Mm-hmm. So we are trying to figure out how to get to that magic number. Yeah. And so to the extent you can help us understand what would be worthwhile for you that would incentivize you to donate and help us to fund Justin, yeah. that would be very helpful. Mm-hmm. Because at twelve hundred, we, we you'll you'll get your four episodes yeah. either way. Well, I'm saying so now not, I need to sweeten the pot a little yes, bit. Yes, but the, it's not like the money goes nowhere. The money yes. is the the next goal is to have Justin full time, mm-hmm. and so we're trying to figure out how can we incentivize people to help us get that. Yeah, last question. I'll ask this and and say no because a lot of people always say yes to these things, and I realize you know nobody's voting no in the comments. Do you guys want us to talk about the business of Charisma on Command and or the podcast at all? Do you care? It's a conversation Ben and I have every day, but not on camera because I don't know how interesting it is. So. Let us know if that's of interest. Yeah, and if you don't, just say no. Because yeah, if, yeah. if we see 10 people say yes and 50 say no, we won't do it. But yeah. if we see 10 people say yes and no one say no, we won't really know what's Might happening. Might ruin a podcast. <laughs> yeah. Cool. All right, that's it. Take care, guys. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret 
and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure.